0: Hi, everyone. This is Steve Bose from the HR Happy Hour Show. Before we get to today's HR Happy Hour Podcast Network show, I wanted to remind you that you can subscribe to all the shows on the HR Happy Hour Podcast Network. That means We're Only Human, Research on the Rocks, The Human Friendly Workplace, HR Market Watch, and of course, the flagship, The HR Happy Hour Show, just by searching for HR Happy Hour. On Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Human Friendly Workplace Podcast. I am your host, Jason Lauritsen, keynote speaker, author, and employee engagement fanatic. In each episode, we'll bring you stories from leaders and organizations who are succeeding by making work more human. These stories will inspire and equip you to do the same for your employees. This podcast is powered by the good people at Small Improvements who share my passion for making the workplace more human-friendly. Small Improvements creates technology to help you promote the ongoing conversations at work that people crave. Clients love their lightweight, flexible approach to feedback and performance. You will too. Check them out at small-improvements.com. That's small-improvements.com. Enjoy today's episode. In today's conversation we're going to explore the real power of purpose in building a business. I you know I've been hearing a lot of talk lately it seems about the importance of purpose in business and the role of purpose in business but at least for me it's not often that you find a business that really lives their purpose from top to bottom inside and out today we're going to hear from one that I think is doing just that. My guest today is Christopher Lofgren, the CEO of Sustainable Restaurant Group. Christopher, welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I had the opportunity to hear you speak at an event last month and was sort of immediately blown away by your message and your passion and and what you're doing with your organization. So I'm excited that you're here to share some of that today. So can we start uh, maybe with learning a little bit about your business? Will you tell us a little bit about what Sustainable Restaurant Group is and does?
1: Yeah, so Sustainable Restaurant Group is the parent company of two brands, two concepts. One is Bamboo Sushi, which is the first certified sustainable sushi restaurants in the world. And then the other one is Quick Fish, which is um, a sustainable, fast, casual uh, concept. And the idea for us, in, in, in a sense, is to deliver healthy, sustainable, and affordable food to everyone. Uh, We feel that, you know, solving the problem of uh, getting nutritious food to people all over the world is a a big one, and uh, it's something that we're really passionate about at Sustainable Restaurant Group, and our goal for the company is to become the largest socially and environmentally responsible restaurant company in the world.
0: Awesome ambition for, for those that maybe are listening that don't, um, maybe aren't as informed or informed about kind of the, the impact or the, the supply chain, I guess, around what it would mean to build a sustainable sushi restaurant sort of chain. Can you talk, maybe talk a little bit about how that, you know, how that, that supply chain works in terms of the impact on the environment and what you're doing specifically that's, that's unique and different from your competitors? Yeah. So
1: the two um, biggest ways that we can fight climate change are one, energy consumption or or use of energy. So, you know, people know the common ones, right? Wind, solar, sustainable, renewable energy, et cetera. Um, Replacing fossil fuels, et cetera, which obviously then goes into things like transportation, electric cars and so on and so forth. The other one, which is actually even bigger uh, of an impact, is our diet. So factory farming of animals actually contributes the most amount of greenhouse gases of anything in the world. And seafood is the most widely consumed protein source on the planet. It's the largest traded commodity in the world by weight, but yet it is not a commodity. So it's one of those areas where if we look at the problem of protein for 11 billion people on the planet, that's the prediction by you know, 2050 that we'll have 11 billion people to feed. Um, seafood has to be a major component of that if we're going to have a sustainable future where people are eating animal products. Um, But at the same time, they're doing so in a very environmentally friendly way. And seafood is the most environmentally friendly, lowest carbon intensive form of animal protein in the world. Um, A lot of that comes from the way it's harvested um, and also the transportation methods. Boat and rail are the most environmentally conscientious forms of transportation in the world. And so with that, we've wanted to build a supply chain that goes directly to the fishermen where we can know the quality of the product that's being sourced. We can guarantee um, the sustainability metrics that are going into fishing that product. So, you know, avoiding bycatch, catching things like dolphins, sea turtles, um, you know, seabirds, sharks, other marine species that aren't going to be consumed or eaten. Um, and also then not having any harm or degradation to the surrounding biological, you know, area. So not destroying coral reefs or, you know, islands or things like that. It's all very important to making sure that the planet is able to stay healthy. Um, and the oceans are the most important aspect of the planet. We're often thinking very much as a terrestrial species, we call our planet, planet earth, yet only 25% of the planet is actually terrestrial. 75% of the planet is ocean and 90% of all of the biomass in the world is actually under the water. And so fixing the problems of a seafood supply chain within food is critical to a healthy, stable uh, planet. And so that was really the driving mission of our company was How do you do that? you have to go in and start with knowing all of the actors, knowing all of your fishermen, and then removing a lot of links in the chain. So by removing a lot of middlemen, we reduce costs for our end consumer being our guests who eat with us in our restaurants. So therefore allowing us to serve a more affordable product. And also we increase freshness. So unlike maybe as an example, your uh, smartphone, which has four or five or six or 20 different people bringing in their parts and components to the final manufacturing and assembly plant, uh, using economies of scale to make that product more affordable. With food, the more people that touch it, the product actually becomes more expensive and less high quality because it's sitting in transport longer. So with food, you actually want the inverse ratio of what you're taught in business school, which is Economies of scale from multiple manufacturers all specify, specifically focused on one thing, and that's how we've built our industrialized food system. But unfortunately, food and technology are not the same thing in terms of what their end all impact is because uh, technology is not something we actually eat. And so you want something that is sure. and healthy, um, and therefore, uh, that is going to be the shortest amount of life from when it's harvested to when it gets to the person. And that's also going to make it the cheapest. And so that's what we're really focused on is doing that for the seafood supply chain globally.
0: So you have just to to kind of get a sense of scale. You have how many restaurants today in total? It's, we have seven. I was looking at the yeah, we have seven. seven today seven. and you're growing. You've got seven. another 10 and then um we've
1: got another 10 uh that we're going to be opening next year. So that's kind of the the growth the go through it now is to double the size of the company by the end of 2019, which will be 20 20 something locations.
0: Got it. So so far what what would you say i'm curious as you you know as you're growing obviously you're doing at least as i understand it and as you know hearing you tell your story you're doing exceptionally well the the business is growing even um it sounds like even at at a pace recently that's ahead of even maybe what your expectations were if i remember correctly um what has Specifically, the way that you've chosen to run your business, the way that you know with with a commitment to sustainability and some of the things you're doing to to impact supply chain and all of that, how has that impacted your business as a business in terms of you know whether it's marketing, whether it's attracting talent, whether it's um, just general response? I'm curious, kind of what the impact has been. Um, beyond sort of the the impact you're having or trying to have on the environment, what's the impact been on the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I would say that to anybody who's interested in starting a mission-based company, they're always harder to start because uh, as I mentioned in the the talk that I gave that you saw where you and I connected, um, doing the right thing is oftentimes the hard thing. And doing the easy thing is oftentimes not the right thing. And most people are taught that they should just do the easiest thing possible to make the most amount of money. There's nothing wrong with doing something and having it be easy and making a lot of money. But if you know that you can do something better, you should always do it better. Um, It's just kind of like an old ethos. You know, I think America in a general sense was kind of built on that premise, right? If you can make something, make it better. Don't sit there and know that something can be better and then just relax and rest on your laurels. And so for us, starting a mission-based company was very hard, uh, doing it in an industry that's notoriously difficult, and then in a sector of the industry, being seafood and sushi, which is notoriously even more difficult. Um, and so it was definitely a path for us that was not, you know, one we were following or copying anybody else. We were kind of grabbing ideas from different companies and also different sectors where we admired the way business was done and kind of combining those together. And, and along the way, sort of created a merry band of of people who believed in a vision that, you know, Um, Was a little outside of the box. And that's kind of the secret sauce of any great company is is that sort of formula. And so I would say that in all avenues of everything we do now, our sustainability has touched something. So as you mentioned, it it allows us to hire people, um, you know, of a higher caliber more early in our development. Um, It allows us to retain people better. Um, obviously guest experience or, or the, the, the consumer experience is, is heightened because they feel good about where they're spending their money, which is now an important aspect of consumer behavior, at least in developed countries. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of benefits to that. And then obviously one of the unknown benefits too is, is our partnerships with uh, our vendors, right? So, or, or, or just our general partners. So like real estate as an example, if there's three restaurants buying for a space, uh, we almost always are the first choice because of the fact that our story is much better and landlords are excited by it. And they want to be a part of that because they want to feel like they're doing something good by just allowing us to be there. So we really do have a lot of net benefit that's not necessarily easy to see at the very beginning, but but something that over time, you really start noticing the network effect of, of what that do or action becomes.
0: Sure. So how? So I'm going to sort of shift us into a conversation about workplace, because that's, you know, obviously that's the nature of of this podcast, but how do you, how have you brought that sense of mission and purpose specifically into the day-to-day operation? I mean, it is a, it's a restaurant at the end of the day and there's stuff that, you know, there's sort of, you're still serving customers and making food and doing all of that. How have you kept or, or sort of op- operationalize that mission and purpose into the, the way you have built your your workplace and the way and the experience you create for your employees? So, I mean,
1: a lot of it just starts with the basics of, you know, decency, respect, communication, uh, integrity, you know, d- do as I do, not do as I say. And so we as an organization stand for, I think, some fairly basic human beliefs. You know, uh, most people don't like to be yelled at. Uh, Most people like to be treated like an adult. Most people like to be considered that they have something that can add as value. So their opinion is, is important to some degree. Uh, Most people want to feel respected. Most people want to feel seen. Um, And so we try to bring that into the workplace. We try to bring that into everything that we do because, you know, it's something where, uh, you know, almost all human beings feel these same things. Um, So it doesn't matter what sector you're in or, or how you work. Um, it it matters about, you know, just the humanity of the situation. We're in a huge, uh, human capitally intensive industry restaurants. Uh, It's all about people. So people's kind of the number one thing. And so we bring it in through those basics. Um, obviously it's built into the core values. Obviously it's built into our training. Um, you know, it's built into the way that we go about our digital marketing and our, our, um, benefits packages and everything like that. But, but more, more importantly, it's just built on the way we treat each other every single day when we see each other. Um, and that culture starts spreading, and that kind of becomes the norm and When somebody comes into the organization that 's not a part of that way of thinking it 's pretty obvious, uh, and they get spit out pretty quickly so those are sort of uh, the basics of, of
0: I think how we how we do a lot of that that work when you were first creating that kind of environment or as you were you know the the first restaurant is coming online and you 're thinking about the the culture you want to create and then you 're extending that out like how You know, it's it's easy. I think a lot of times, maybe not easy, but it's you know to be clear about saying this is the culture that I want to create. It's a different thing to make sure that it's actually happening in practice. That you know the the people that are showing up are experiencing it that way. And then every location you add, and as you scale, that becomes harder to maintain that consistency. What have you found to be the most important sort of levers in ensuring that? you know, those, those intentions that you have about how people are, are treated on a day-to-day basis are being um, lived and maintained and scaled as you grow.
1: It generally starts with just hiring great people. Um, You know, I mean, I think for us, the biggest lesson that we've learned is, you know, who the leaders are, are who the, you know, the, the, the teams are going to be reflective of. And so, uh, we try to find really great people who have a uh, great leadership style about them and really see people for themselves and can see people as individuals. That's something very important, I think, to this generation more than any other generation uh, in the past in the workforce is that everybody wants to feel seen as an individual. And so you have to have a leader who is willing to do that. It takes more time, it takes a lot more empathy and sensitivity Uh, And it doesn't mean that that leader can't be hard driving and demanding and disciplined and, you know, sometimes scary. It just means that that leader has to be somebody who also has compassion and uh, vulnerability and love and thoughtfulness. And so I would say that the biggest thing we can do is hire great people and, and then bring them into our organization and train them in our way of being through a systems and process standpoint. But I can't fix what their parents did or did not do to them. <laughs> I can't change, sure. you know, ultimately how uh, they act as a human being in the world. That's almost an impossibility. And I think a lot of employers miss that mark is that they think, well, over time, this personal change is kind of the same reason why so many people have bad relationships as they think, well, I'm going to change this person. They're so close, but I'll change them. We don't look to really change the people we bring on. I mean, the best you know feedback we can get from any of our leaders is this is the most life-changing job they've ever had and it's the best place they've ever worked and those things and that happens over time. But the expectation is not to change them. The expectation is to get them to understand our systems and process and execute those with the same set of values that we all share. And they're all a little different in the way they're exercised in the world, but they should be close. And that's the biggest way we see how we can grow and be be thoughtful about this. And a lot of that comes from just internal growth, right? Not overextending ourselves on a growth path beyond the human capital that we have. The human capital side will be the constraint, not the money. Money is less available, sure. but human capital is the key.
0: So on that line, you mentioned a couple of times that you've been able to hire high, higher, higher caliber people probably earlier in your evolution than you expected. And I, I gather that that's not only in sort of support kind of roles, but also actually in your restaurant management and that kind of thing. Why do you, I guess, number one, what does that mean? What is, when you say higher caliber, what does that mean? And number two, why do you think that is? Is that, is it because of the, the strength of your mission and and people are sort of drawn to that? I think it's a couple of things. So one, there's a great saying at Google, um, which
1: has a reputation for hiring some of the best people in the world and building a very large organization very quickly around incredible minds. And that is that A-caliber people like to work with A-caliber people. Uh, Another way I've heard it phrased, which I think is even better than that, is that a 10, if you look at everybody as a scale of 1 to 10, a 10 being the best, will hire a 10 or an 11, right? They'll find somebody that they think is even better than them. But a 9 is just self-conscious enough to know that they're not a 10 and they'll hire an 8. And an 8 will hire a 7 and a 7 will hire a 6 and so on and so forth. So as an organization, we really try to find people that are 10s. We really try to find A players. And um, that is often because we are a mission-based company, because we are a company of change, because we do things differently. Uh, Those people are attracted to that kind of behavior. The best people in the world don't want the safest road to success the best people in the world want to forge their own path and be amongst uh, a group of individuals who are doing something meaningful and interesting. And so any organization that thinks that they're going to build a great organization on the back of a bunch of sixes because those people will fall into line is deeply uh, misunderstanding greatness. It doesn't mean you can't build a company that has a hundred million dollars in revenue and takes down 30 million to the bottom line. I'm not saying that you might be in a sector where the margins work and you just need a bunch of rule followers. The companies that we all think of, the iconic companies that really changed the landscape of business in any sector, they all were weird. They were all outliers. They were all said, this can never work. This isn't following the norm, et cetera. And that was because they were all built out of a group of people who were all tens, but were weird and interesting and different. And so we look for that. We seek that out um, to try to find those people and bring them together. Uh, So I think that that's that's something else that that makes what we do uh, different and also what we do very exciting to those people and how we're able to attract and hire those people is they want to be around each other because they're not interested in going into the insurance office that has really great margins, that's really safe and punching in at 901 and clocking out at 501. You know, they're interested in, hey, if I have to work through Christmas and I'm going to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to do something to solve a problem, they'll do that, not because they're getting paid, but because they're deeply disturbed by not being able to solve that problem. And, you know, I know for myself personally, I work constantly, but I don't, there are some things, of course, we all have things in our jobs, no matter who you are. I don't care if you're a rock star or professional athlete or whatever you want to say, you have things in your job you don't like. But for the most part, I don't feel like I go to work. I feel like I get the opportunity to do really cool things with really great people and solve really interesting problems. And that's why I love to do what I do. And I don't mind working all the time because I'm trying to get towards a goal of solving a big problem and that doesn't get created by punching in at nine and clocking out at five.
0: So I'm curious, just the, the way that you describe, you know, if, if someone was just jumping into the middle of this conversation without having heard the first part of it, the way that you talk about your business and talk about talent, I don't think they would guess like, oh, yeah, restaurant. Clearly, this guy's running a restaurant. You know, it's just not that's not the language that I generally hear. It's a whole different, you know, it's a it's a different kind of industry. When you're recruiting talent or you're attracting talent, do you is high caliber talent mean you're going and finding finding great restaurant tier talent from other place and bringing them on board, or are you bringing talent from outside of the restaurant business into the restaurant business? Like, how are you building? Yeah, your that's teams? a great question. So my background is traditionally not in restaurants. So
1: I didn't grow up with any family members who worked or owned restaurants. Uh, I never worked in a restaurant growing up. My background was more in the traditional liberal arts um, and you know sciences, finance law, uh, business, et cetera, real estate. And then I got really lucky in the early uh, part of the recession when I had started my restaurant company. I had also met some really amazing people in Silicon Valley and started angel investing in technology companies. And I'm a big believer in staying constantly curious, being autodidactic, right? Just reading and teaching yourself. And so I study organizations. And I love uh, behavioral psychology. It's one of my favorite areas of science to study because it will oftentimes predict your outcomes better than any type of chart or past performance on a financial basis. But actually the human behavior side really drives the rest of the outcomes. One of the things I looked at and studied was why are so many tech companies so successful? Obviously a lot fail, but the ones that succeed, succeed massively. And they're able to move so quickly, so much faster than any other type of organization. Yes, there's things like the fact that for 20 years, the internet was laid in you know, transcontinental cable pipeline. And so that's already there for them available. And yes, people were spreading computers around the world. So that's there. And servers existed so the cloud could happen. Yes, 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 yes. But nonetheless... People who work in technology companies, especially the good ones, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, Teslas, et cetera, they work crazy hours, not necessarily always for the most glamorous pay. I mean, they get paid well, but certainly they work really hard. And they are often working just for stock. They're often working just for the end opportunity of having that equity payout one day. And I started studying that. And the reason why they do what they do is because they're highly motivated intrinsically within themselves individually, and they are interested in solving problems. And they want to be compensated for that, of course, but that's not why they wake up and go to work. Whereas if you look at something like finance or getting into a lot of other industries that pay well, um, they oftentimes lack, and I'm not saying this about all finance people by any stretch of the imagination, there are tons of finance people that are super, I mean, Warren Buffett's a great example of somebody who's just so passionate about numbers and money and businesses. And that's why he's as wealthy as he is, right? He's not doing it for money. He would have stopped many, many, many decades ago. So there are those people, but anybody who's working for the pursuit of money will stop working very quickly and lose motivation very quickly. It's kind of like the equivalent of if you're working out to look a certain way uh, or dieting Mm. to look a certain way, you're very rarely going to achieve your goals because those things fluctuate. It ebbs and flows. Whereas if you're dieting to achieve a marathon distance or um, you want to be somebody who is healthy and can pick up their grandkids until they're 70 or bigger, more deeply and meaningful goals, you're going to be able to have a higher return on your investment and probably far out, probably far exceed your original goal or thought. And so to your point about restaurants, restaurateurs tend to think about money. And one of the things that shocked me when I got into the industry was everybody talks about money, and yet it's not an industry that makes a lot of money. And so I was so surprised mm. to hear all these people constantly worrying about money when I was like, guys, if you want to make money, go into finance, go into oil, go into energy, go into tech, right. you know, go into sales, right. right? do a million other things. Restaurants are not about making money. Yes, you could be the guy who starts the next Starbucks or Jamba Juice or Chipotle or Whole Foods or what have you, of course, and that's what I want to be and that's what our company wants to become is one of the great iconic companies in our in our sector, right? But the only way you get there, if you talk to any of those people who started those companies, none of it was started because of money. Jamba Juice was started because they couldn't find a healthy, sweet, like delicious dessert alternative after they would go surfing in Santa Cruz and it was all these sugary mm. drinks and they wanted to fuel their bodies with something more healthy and nutritious, Starbucks was started because Howard Schultz believed that coffee culture in Europe, which was elegant and sophisticated and refined, could be made available to everybody in the United States and therefore create a home away from home, something in between the office and your house where you could come and you could feel like you had a home away from home. And it could be a part of this cafe culture that was existing in Europe everywhere in the world. And everyone could have this hospitality around this ritual drink, coffee or tea, that most people around the world drink every day. You know, Chipotle was started because Steve Ells was passionate about uh, high quality restaurants. He wanted to eventually make his own high end restaurant and sustainable food. And he was making food staff meal, essentially family meal for people, and realizing that this was the way towards Chipotle. And then, oh my God, I can actually change the face of you know animal cruelty, um, you know hormone free, etc., healthier meats, blah blah blah. Whole Foods same thing. John Mackey said, "Why can't I go to a grocery store that's everywhere in the country and get something healthy?" Right? It wasn't about I'm going to try to make something where I can make a 10% profit margin. I'm going to do this. It's just not the right way to start a business. That's not inspiring. And so you have to start with something that is inspiring. That's how you will attract great people. Great people want to continue to be inspired and inspire themselves. So you have to let them free and give them autonomy and freedom to make mistakes. And then you have to set a really, really, really big goal. That is something that seems almost impossible or almost unachievable to then wake up every day and feel meaning in terms of the purpose. Because eventually you will get to a place where Reasonably early on, you may make enough money that you're like, this was more money than I ever thought I would make, or this is enough money for me to take care of my family. Why am I getting up anymore? And you're getting up not for the money. The money is, of course, great and necessary, but you're getting up for the purpose of making a difference. And that's really what st- separates our company or companies like our company from all of the other companies out there is that we really are getting up for a purpose. And that's where you drive those huge returns, those massively different results, and those big impacts in the world. Because of that kind of thinking
0: that so i'm i'm that's awesome, and I do you because of that because of the way that you communicate about your business and and the the nature of the talent you attract as do you still have to work do you still have to work as hard to find people like do you go act i mean do you have to go out and actively recruit folks and seek them out and target and and convince people to come do you have people finding you? I'm just curious how strong the pull is of of having a business like this, that's kind of in a, you know, that, that has a different ethos and a different way of, of thinking within an industry that's, you know, that you obviously stand out in the industry for that reason. Do people come to you? How hard is it um, to find talent? It's still very
1: hard. I mean, I think anybody in the restaurant industry will tell you that, you know, there's a shortage of people um, in the industry. The industry is growing rapidly. Uh, we're the largest employer in America. The hospitality restaurant industry is. You know, and even a, a good buddy of mine um, runs 11 Madison Park, and they also run the Nomad restaurants, which are in New York and now uh, Los Angeles. And we were talking about it the other day, and they were opening, you know, two, two, uh, two weeks away from opening the Nomad in Los Angeles, and they still didn't have their full kitchen staff hired. You know, that's the best restaurant in the world, mm-hmm. the 11 Madison Park was um, for 2017. So for them to be the best restaurant in the world and have all the publicity and press and kitchen staff that they have and still not to be able to be filled out, that says something about our industry. Likewise, you know, for sure, we absolutely feel like we are getting higher quality candidates coming to us earlier now. I mean, we get people seeking us out when they move to Portland or seeking us out when we're going into new markets like Colorado and Washington. And that's very exciting because that's new. And so you know, two years from now or three years from now, will I think that it will be easier? I do. I do think it will be easier because we'll have a bigger platform. Uh, We will have more recognition. We will have better benefits and perks than we even have now. We'll have uh, more, you know, locations available for people to come and work at. So there will be a lot of things I think that will be positive for us. But, you know, nonetheless, I think the talent pool is is always fierce. Uh, you know, great, great people are always in demand. There's not a tremendous amount of great people in the world. I think that there can be more great people in the restaurant industry than almost any other industry because the vast majority of the restaurant industry is about your personality. You know, anybody can learn to cook. Anybody can learn to serve a table uh, proficiently. It, it, these skills that we're doing is... It, it, they're not rocket science. It's not hyper complicated. It doesn't require a massive amount of intelligence. It requires a massive amount of emotional intelligence. It requires a lot of the human side of things. And I do see that that is fading away in a generation of people that are stuck to Facebook and Instagram and losing manners and not having any type of uh, values for upholding, you know, can I make this better? Should I push harder? Uh, can I work harder, et cetera. So some of those old school values that maybe you know, are thought of as being American values, kind of World War II, greatest generation era values. Those are some of the things that I would like to see brought back into the hospitality industry that I think are missing. And, you know, the Ritz-Carlton kind of mantra of ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, people going above and beyond for the guests just because it's the right thing to do for people. It's the, the industry has enough people to create what I call now a lot of transactions. We see a lot of transactional service in the industry and fast casual has been a big reason for that because people come in they get a smile they get a bowl of food they're out for 10 bucks that's what they want but the experiential aspect of the restaurant industry has been hard hit that's mostly full service fine dining polished casual etc and that's something that we're really adamant about bringing back or holding because that is the backbone of what hospitality is. It's not just somebody, a bowl in a cafeteria line at Chipotle with a smile. It's really knowing that person. It's getting to know their family. It's recognizing the table they like. It's knowing the drink they want. It's, you know, understanding their hard day or their date or their marriage proposal. It's all of those things that make restaurants really fantastic places and the watering holes and the fabric of the communities that they operate in. And that is being somewhat lost in this age and something that we as a company want to continue forging ahead with is making sure that the humanity of hospitality is never lost.
0: So as we, I just noticed our time is flying by and, and one of the things I wanted to to ask you about, and I think it's, Just to sort of drive home the point that back to your, you know, doing the right thing is often the hard thing, um, that the hard work, though, is if you do that hard thing that it pays off. Um, You told a story in Dallas about, I think it was your Denver restaurant that a, a competitor came and tried to recruit all of your top people away um, like very directly by throwing money at them. Uh, I'm curious if you'd share just a little bit about what happened and what the result of that was, because I think that sort of drives home the point that the hard thing is worth it in yeah. the end so if you we, do the hard work. Um, you know, pay well, we don't, we don't underpay people,
1: but we're certainly not the most generous in terms of pay. That's for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, we're a small company and we just can't afford to do that. And we would rather put a lot of extra money into our benefits plans because we believe in you know, healthcare. We believe in paid vacation time. A lot of things that small restaurant companies of our size don't do. Uh, the second reason is because we work in very expensive markets right now. I mean, Portland, Oregon is very expensive. Seattle is very expensive. Denver is more affordable, but nonetheless, the vast majority of our restaurants are in more expensive markets. So the cost of sure. there is just more expensive, sure. which gives us less money to play with at the end to be able to uh, you know, overpay people, so to speak as some, some restaurants do Uh, not a ton, but a few of them do. Um, this competitor came into the market and we know each other as being basically our only competitors for one another. And it's the first time we've ever met in a market and it's exciting. Um, you know, we, I hope I, I, I respect what they do from a culinary standpoint. I believe they do too, from our standpoint, or they wouldn't have tried to hire away my entire team. Um, and they came in with a meaningful amount of money, sort of a you know what would be the equivalent of a you know backing up a dump truck with some money and just kind of dumped it on my team and said, "Look, we're going to pay you guys all twenty five thousand dollars a year more than what you're getting paid here. Come on down." And across the board, every person on my team said, "Thanks, but no thanks. We're here for a reason. We're here for the mission. We're here for the the culture. We're here for the team. This is a family. We really believe in it. We really see it. This company backs up what they say they're going to do, and we think that long term." we're going to be more successful with these guys. And that's a big part of our plan too, is, you know, if we were going to stay small, I think they would have gone, you know, I think they would have, because that that's meaningful money right now. Right. And what's the future holds. We don't know, but because they know that we're an ambitious company with massive growth plans and because they've seen us be able to execute on that growth. And because they've seen the response that they've already created for themselves in Denver, if you look at our online reviews, they're just absolutely outstanding, especially for a new restaurant in a new city. Um, you know they've created that success and so why would they stop now when we're going to open three or four more bamboo sushis in the colorado area and many more quick fish which would give them the ability to get paid significantly more than what that competitor is making uh an offer for and also that competitor is only going to open one restaurant so sure. you're also tapped out then at that point sure. your growth is stunted whereas for us your growth is just getting started and so weighing all of those things and then on top of it too i mean eventually you know we are offering stock to our employees hopefully in the not too distant future et cetera, et cetera. so there's just so much more incentive we're a big believer in earn it we don't overpay people at the beginning we actually will slightly underpay people make them earn it and then we will pay them accordingly with the uh proof being in the pudding and so you know it was sure. something that was very near and dear to our heart because this is a new market uh, it's a restaurant that was many months delayed in opening, which you know could create a lot of doubt for people around our ability to execute. Um, it's a uh, you know slower start to the market than obviously we would have if we had opened a restaurant here in Portland where we're a known quantity. So sales aren't necessarily bustling right away, mm-hmm. right? And you know these guys are getting wooed away with this very fancy offer, and it was just incredibly meaningful, incredibly heartwarming for them to say, "Look." We do need to get paid maybe a little bit more, so we said, sure, of course, that makes sense. I can't ask you to turn down twenty five thousand dollars and not make any type of you know, offer to you to maybe have sure. a little bit of of something there to say, okay, look, like we get it, like that's a big deal that you turn that down. Uh, but at the same time, you know, nothing. They weren't saying match this offer or we're leaving or anything. You know, it was just, hey, would you mind kicking down a little bit more and we'll do this together? And I said, yeah, that sounds fantastic. That sounds great. And actually, even at the beginning when they got the offer, it was originally. Uh, 15,000 and they turned it down flat and they didn't even ask us for anything. And then when it became 25, we said, okay, look, we're, we're going to have to pay you a little bit more for this. And that's a big deal to sure. somebody who's making 75 grand. I mean, that's 33% increase on your salary. Um,
0: yeah. no so, doubt. Yeah.
1: So it was great. That's awesome. So um, we've been really proud of, of, of the team and really proud of the culture and, and excited to, you know, uh, see where this goes as far as, you know, just, just doing the right thing.
0: Cool, that's a great story. I love that. You know, when you take care of people and give them something meaningful um, to work on, and great people to work with, they will stay with you. Um, it doesn't. Back to your point, it's not always all about the money. The money is important, but it's not always. Uh, it's not the end thing. Um, last question, and then I'll let you uh, let you off the hook here. Um, I, I close the, the podcast always with the same question. So I will ask you this. Um, what one piece of advice would you offer to someone who's listening right now who is in their own organization working to create a more human-friendly workplace for their I employees? I would say get other
1: people involved. Nobody can do it on their own. If you want to have a great workplace, it has to come from every person believing in the same thing. And just like you would in a marriage You can't believe one thing and the other person believes something completely different and have the marriage be successful. You have to be aligned, not in everything, but in the way you treat each other, in the values that you share. Those have to be, you know, spot on the same. And so in an organization, if you have an organization where the collective group disagrees on the values of how you treat each other, it's an impossible task to make it work. So you have to align everybody. So my advice would be collect the people that you know are going to be the stakeholders in creating that culture and get them involved in aligning the values. Awesome.
0: Thank you for that. Well, I will, uh, thank you for, and thank you for joining me. What a, what a great story. I know that, uh, I have become a fan of yours and a fan of your organization. I can't wait for the next time I'm in either Denver or Portland to come visit one of your restaurants, uh, to have the experience. I'm a big sushi fan, so I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh for those that are listening, um go find if you're if you're you happen to be in Denver or Portland or soon Seattle. Yeah, Is Seattle uh, open yet? I can't remember uh, if you said say that or not. But it's 5 to 6 coming. months away. There we go. So Seattle's coming. If you find yourself in any of those places, go find a Bamboo Sushi or Quickfish and uh, give, it a, give it a try. Check it out. Uh, see it in action. Christopher, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing the story. I, uh, I have no doubt that you will do great things in the future. I, I look so forward much. I to really tracking your success. See you, everybody. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Human Friendly Workplace. If you'd like to connect with me to share feedback or recommend a future guest, please email me at jason at jasonlourtson.com. That's jason at And a very special thank you to Small Improvements for making today's podcast possible. If you enjoyed it, you can thank us by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts and recommending it on to others who you think might find it worthwhile. We'll see you next time.